वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक सिंह टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द एवरीडे लाइफ रिव्यू यू थिंक अबाउट द रिदम्स इंटेंशन ऑफ एवरीडे लाइफ यूजिंग कॉन्सेप्ट आर्ट लिटरेचर फिलोसफी एंथ्रोपोलॉजी ग्रामर एंड सोशोलॉजी वट इज अ मोमेंट हाउ इज ऑर्डनरी लाइफ इवेंटेड हाउ इज एथिक्स एम्बेडेड इन ऑर्डनरी एक्शंस हाउ ईजी और डिफिकल्ट इज इट टू एक्सपीरियंस लाइफ इन द एवरीडे वेन कैन ऑर्डनरी रेडीमेड ऑब्जेक्ट्स बी डेजिग्नेटेड एज आर्ट वॉट मेक्स रूम फॉर इंटीमेसी और वायलेंस इन द मंडेन how transparent is one's experience of oneself and the other what is the value of the fleeting and the mundane and what is the value of the little things we are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today professor veena das who's an anthropologist and is interested in the relationship between philosophy and anthropology she has been working on the urban poor for the last 15 years and sudeep patwardhan who's a painter mainly of the city and people of bombay Vina why don't we set the ball rolling with you um to start at the obvious and not so obvious place of what is everyday what is everyday for you and what is not everyday so usually we tend to think of the everyday as if it were the kind of site of you know routine and habit and repetition mm-hmm. and it's often assumed that everyday has the character of the banal so if we want to uh you know the higher realms of the self are found in escape to something else which is transcendental whether that be mysticism religion art whatever so my thought on the everyday has been um of thinking about the everyday and the ordinary as always knitted with the extraordinary so that the extraordinary is imminent in the everyday it's not something which is outside the everyday sure and the second thought has been to think about the everyday as always laced with some fantasy mm-hmm. so it's not like this is the site which is completely mechanical and routine and a fantasy life lives somewhere else but how fantasy is embedded in everyday which of course makes me also think of the everyday as always shadowed by skepticism that is it's something which entails in a certain sense uh, the idea of uh, betrayal the idea of things not quite working out the idea of uh, uh, you know skepticism not of the cafe skepticism kind to just say oh how do i know the world exists and i can always show you that the world you can't prove to me that the world exists but the genuine kind of skepticism which can uh, you know suddenly throw my world into jeopardy skepticism of 
skepticism as a particular stance right. so that in some ways it's the kind of uh, world annihilation that can happen when let's say somebody I know very well uh, I mean think of Oedipus sure. right? he suddenly discovers that yeah. the woman he's been sleeping with is his mother Yeah. now obviously this is not just something that would mean that at that moment his life became different yeah. but that his entire life became different yeah. once something like that happens yeah. and I've been actually quite interested in um, seeing how skepticism is something which is of course a very genuine problem in philosophy but it's always been taken as an epistemic problem you know how do we know the external world exists Whereas the great move that happened with uh, Wittgenstein, I've argued in my work, um, is that the skepticism becomes a skepticism not about the external world, but about the internal world, about what is my world in some ways, which comes under, under jeopardy. Which means that thinking about every day is to think about um, philosophically very difficult problems, and anthropologically, I think what happened in the social sciences after the World War II is there was this unprecedented period of what people thought was a period of peace. Actually, it was only a period of peace where social scientists were. It was not a period of peace in Africa. It was not a period of peace in Latin America. But these experiences did not register in the social sciences. And as a result, the everyday came to be seen as a pretty banal, benign kind of place. Whereas, um, to me, it's like something which is uh, like, you know, you, you might see a solid rock from the outside. You lift it up and you see life mm. in that, right? Mm. And this is kind of squirming life in many kinds of ways. Uh, so I think my argument in some ways of why I'm so fascinated by the everyday is that precisely it looks very easy and very banal and very you know, available to the senses. Uh, but in fact, it's something which is uh, has obscurity built into it. It's the sort of space in which the life of the other is engaged. It's the sort of space in which I would argue that something like life and death are completely knitted together, just as faith and betrayal are, love and hatred are, you know, and it's premised on the fundamental idea that human beings um, are wonderful for each other, but they're also extremely dangerous for each other. And right. so how to capture that is where the concept of everyday takes me. Right, and what strikes me is very interesting in what you're saying, Veena, is uh, this notion of fantasy, which you've spoken less about. Um, so where does that come in? Oh, even our, I mean, take very simple things like if you, when this uh, magazine Manushi started, mm. uh, which is a feminist uh, uh, magazine and really had a huge impact. Mm. I was fascinated by how many women would write and say, I really want to be like Sita. Mm. I cannot be like Sita, right? So something like a fantasy in women's lives of the idea that, that they are going to be going to have such fidelity to the husband mm. that they would never 
imagine something like, you know, they would be devastated by the fact that you may be attracted to another man. Even Nothing by the thought. Nothing may come of it, right? Mm. But the fact that these moments will exist, instead of accepting that as saying, uh, you know, this is what life is, it becomes imbued in a certain sense with uh, these amazing kinds of fantasies of what you could be or what you could become. So one very interesting example is the place of mythology in everyday life for mm. example. Mm. Um, so that's the sort of thing in which, um, you know, in which the role of imagination, the place really of uh, even our ethical lives is always having a certain element of fantasy around it. Um, it's that where the securing of the everyday becomes an enormous amount of work that requires to be done in mm. the securing of the everyday. Mm -hmm. There's some interesting ideas there which we'll unwrap as we go along. Uh, Sudhir, what is everyday for you? I mean, a lot of your work uh, resonates with some of the notions that Veena is talking about. Um, what is everyday? What is mundane? What is superficial for you? And why is it exciting and interesting for you? Uh, in fact, uh, many of the things that Veena, you said, uh, are, are very close to uh, my practice and to the practice of uh, many artists, in fact. Mm. And uh, I think historically, uh, in 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 the case of Indian art in the 70s, there was a shift towards painting everyday life of common people, you know. And this this moment is when I, in fact, came on the art scene and what my work started. That? Well, it was a movement away from two things. One was that the life of people was important. You know, people wanted to engage with the social life of people. Artists wanted to engage. And the second uh, idea was that to be Indian, uh, to see your own contemporary reality uh, was, was more urgent than in finding a kind of historical Indianness in your work, which was what the earlier generation of painters were doing. Both significant contributions, but this was the change that brought in. And so for me, every day has always been, as as you correctly said, it's, it's not simple, it's not mundane, and it has all the elements of the extraordinary within it, fantasy, extraordinary. So it's a question of seeing the everyday as, uh, you know, seeing that, whatever is beyond, you know, whatever aspirations one has for a better life, whatever aspirations one has for a transcendent life are all in some senses part of everyday. And looking at ordinary people doing ordinary work can also reveal, or for example, in an ordinary gesture of a person washing his face. Now, this is an ordinary gesture, but that gesture can mean much more than just washing the face. Such so, as, like in, in what sense do you say that? Well, if, if you imagine this, if, if you imagine a woman with two hands close to her face, the kind of meanings that it generates, and this also generates, the, it generates multiple meanings because also in the history of art and in our own experience of uh, seeing people, 
mm-hmm. you know various moments have revealed uh, this moment in different ways to us mm-hmm. so we have seen the same someone sleeping for example with with the arm over over their head mm. now, this is a simple kind of gesture is there but for us since childhood these gestures would have been imbibed with various kinds of memories various kinds of meanings and all these can be brought to the surface so the everyday will have these things of memory these things of or so they are highly evocative for you they are they are extremely evocative uh, of various things not just one kind of thing sure but you mentioned mythology for example and uh, for example christ mm-hmm. and christ crucified body mm-hmm. and the shape the form of that crucified body mm-hmm. repeats itself in a countless ways in everyday life you know or someone who is emerging from the earth mm-hmm. you know or some body that's emerging from the earth it might be a manhole in a city it might be a earthquake it might be anything so any kind of thing that is simple at one end can be very different and and very extraordinary at the other end and all these meanings are in some way inherent in that image so it's up to the artist to be able to extract the kinds of meanings from these uh images or from these gestures from the body that's the kind of interesting and if we for a second uh, take the person out of the equation and think of let's say the city mm. um is there a way in which one would think of a place or a setting in a manner which is different from a setting which is necessarily peopled i mean do you necessarily need people to think of this or ruminate of this in a manner that might be interesting no i think it happens with places as well mm-hmm. it happens in different ways mm-hmm. but for example a flowing river mm-hmm. or a nalla mm-hmm. and some buildings on the side mm-hmm. reflections of those buildings in the nalla or in the in the water mm-hmm. now i'm i'm speaking of uh, a place ulasnagar close sure. to bombay north bombay where i've i've done a work of this but this would evoke for me various things this this would evoke for me uh, a flowing uh, river evokes various kinds of imaginaries in your mind you sure. know civilization along river banks this sure. that all that sure a polluted river evokes very very many different things a polluted river can also be very beautiful the colors in a polluted river when it's chemically polluted have fantastic yeah sometimes uh, they're a sight to behold absolutely yeah <laughs> and then your mind is in a conflict of wanting what kind of meaning do you want to give this mm. you know mm. it's pollution it's harming the fish life it's killing and, and it's beautiful as an artist so, is that an ethical sort of a position dilemma for you it's a dilemma in the sense the dilemma is how to keep the uh kind of how to keep both these meanings intact right you know without sacrificing either right because that is what you have felt and ultimately your truth has to be to what you have felt about the space mm. you know mm. so mm. so that's the kind of in buildings or for example in bombay you see apartments and then these glass 
huge glass uh, yeah. buildings coming up. Yeah. There's a contrast. You might shift towards emphasizing a, a, a contrast, economic contrast of injustice of this scene. But it's also magical in a sense. Yeah. You know? So, what do you do with this? Yeah. <laughs> the thing is to, you're ambivalent, you know, basically to hold ambivalent feelings within a work. You know, that mm. becomes the mm. challenge. Mm. And, 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 and what is an event for you? And we'll go and ask that same question of Veena, but mm -hmm. what is an event for you? So some of these works, either yours or other, other painters you might admire, are they non-narrative? Are they, is, is stuff happening? It's, it's, it's a, it's momentary. It's just meant to be evocative. Uh, what's your strategy when you do that? I think narrative is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, as a painter, I paint still images. Uh, but they have a past and a future implied. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, so they may are a not... moment. They are a moment within a narrative. Yeah. Now... There isn't Some, necessarily movement in there, but yeah. Yes, there mm. isn't movement. There's still mm. by the nature of the medium. Mm. But uh, there is uh, this kind of temporal before. You imagine what this person may have been just before and where he's going, if he's walking on the street, if mm. that's what you're doing. But there's another kind of... Uh, uh, one, one experiences sometimes an image in real life which is uh, which is frozen you know so the image itself is frozen when it comes to you uh, an example is uh, once I, I, I saw a man standing at on the balcony opposite my house uh, shielding himself from the sun by uh, with the shadow of a pole that was in front of him <laughs> you know so this was a this is an image uh, that came as a frozen image to me. So it frozen in the sense that it was a gift. It it was already a painting. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I saw was already a painting. It's beautiful. So mm. I didn't. It didn't have a beginning or an end. Mm. You know, it was there. Mm. So that's one kind of event, and another kind of event, as you said, and is are, when are these are these fleeting? Are these fleeting? Do they come and go? Or are you getting these gifts all the time? No, not at all at all the time. They're rare, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm. One has to wait for them. But mm. when they do come, they're at a joy. Mm. You know? Mm. Mm. And the other kind, as we said, is there is a clear narrative. And within that, you have chosen a moment, not necessarily a, a climatic moment, but some moment that is pregnant with Possibilities, you know, meaning possibilities. in whatever yes. way. Yes. What What is What is an event for you, uh, Veena? I mean, let's bring notions of time, event. We've spoken about the fleeting. Um, what does this mean to you? So, um, from where I come in my in my kind of discipline, the idea of the event. Mm -hmm was seen to be this cataclysmic something that happens. You know, the normal definition was that the event comes from nowhere. So there was this assumption that newness, whether in life or in structure, is something which comes, you know, like a bolt. Yeah. Right? Um, 
I've of course argued that there is a very male organasmic kind of uh, yeah. uh, you know it's like an orgasm right yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's very modeled in a certain sense the language is very much like a kind of model of the sudden explanation and I, I, I've argued the opposite it's true that in 1995, I thought of the event, and I still will hold to that, that the event has the capacity mm -hmm. to change the grammar of your relationships. And I was thinking of the partition, for example, at that time, mm -hmm. and how even if they used vocabularies like honor and shame and, you know, martyrdom and heroism, etc., it was almost as if the words were deformed by the kind of violence that had happened. But event could also be like falling in love might be seen as an event because of its suddenness. Um, but what I've tried to argue is that when you try to see it in, uh, you know, in the flow of time, it seems to me that it becomes very hard to draw boundaries around an event because, uh, you know, it's like tentacles which connect to the everyday uh, so that it doesn't necessarily have a beginning and an end. Sometimes stories can lie dormant for years and then suddenly come into being again. We can't just say that this is totally new because when we track it, we might find that, um, uh, you know, that the force of these stories comes from the fact that um, it's like every moment has a vertical kind of depth, right? Like if you think of a, um, you know, of... Um, um, what do you mean by what that? What is boond in English? Uh, drop, drop of uh, water. And you think of all the organisms that go into this drop of water. You can see it swirling with life and it has many temporalities within it. Our bodies have many temporalities within it, right? Yeah. Um, so then it becomes like a palimpsest where you can see yeah. a kind of vertical cutting through mm. of mm. many, many kinds of, uh, um, uh, you know, of many kinds of durations, so to say, not a single duration where I am. Um, so I really love this point that Sudhir was making, which is, uh, you know, in some ways that sometimes a word or a gesture uh, can embody in it different kinds of times. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, in one of the areas I work in, there is a... Um, uh, there's a very interesting Muslim man who also is acts as a kind of leader in that community. And his leadership qualities come partly because he's very good in negotiating with the police. So if you get in trouble, <laughs> you know, he's very good in it. And everybody in the locality recognizes that. So I was once joking with him and I said, you know, um, how come this is a Hindu majority population in this particular area? How did they elect you as a leader? Uh, and uh, he said, I'm their mama Shakuni. <laughs> this is a fantastic <laughs> reference, right? Because Mama Shakuni in the Mahabharat is, of course, Duryodhan's mama, his mother's brother. And it's very well acknowledged that he's the one who prods, um, you know, Duryodhan to actually not settle to, yeah. you know, to he's the one who's, um, who's uh, 
Was the provocateur. Uh, this thing, the dice, right? He's, yes, uh, yes. Um, he's, because the dice are made from the thigh of his father. He has these magical powers. So, you know, so there's an elaborate thing on how he's the one who pushes Duryodhan to fight for more. And this is, people usually think this is because of the great love he had for Duryodhan. But we also know that Shakuni was one of the hundred brothers whom Dhritarashtra had killed. Because Dhritarashtra, when he learned that Gandhari had been married to a goat before, because there was a prediction that she would become a widow, so she'd been married to a goat. And when he learns it, he's very angry that she was not married to him first, right? <laughs> and as a revenge, he puts all her brothers in prison. Mm. And they are given very small rations which they save and give to Shakuni mm. because he's the cleverest mm. and he survives and they all die. Mm. And then, you know, the king repents and he becomes a big, big favorite of his nephews. But he, you don't know whether he's pushing Duryodhan towards his uh, ultimate uh, demise and disaster or whether he's doing out of love, right? Now, the fact that this man, simply by saying, I'm the Shakuni Mama, manages to create an entire narrative through a particular word, right? Yeah. So you don't know, I mean, am I somebody who is doing these things as a favor for them? As I'm Muslim, do I really hate them? Right? And the fact that he has, you know, the ability to say that without quite saying in, that yeah, yeah, yeah. is, uh, mm. you know, it's really quite fantastic. And I could give you many stories of that kind. So... It seems to me that everyday life has like these kinds of, uh, um, you know, these kinds of moments, these words, these gestures that are completely woven into it. And you can see suddenly that there is a kind of, you know, inheritance in everyday life of a... Uh, you know, of a vast repertoire of uh, mythology, history, literature, uh, which makes up everyday life. And so the eventedness of everyday life is what I've argued um, is something which comes precisely because of the fact that the everyday is a site of both the ordinary and the extraordinary, which is why I've tried to move away from this idea purely that everyday life is a complete rupture. Mm. Uh, I mean, event is a complete rupture of everyday life. Mm, mm, mm. What is extraordinary for you? So can one can experience be, death in a very ordinary kind of way? So it's a, it's it's a, that's a very interesting question because that raises the question of what is ordinary. Mm. Now you could, and it's a very difficult question because mm. uh, you know because something uh, which uh, again I'm going to speak with an example, right? Please. Mm. Um, so I've characterized the areas I work in as places of pathological normativity. Mm -hmm. That is to say it's because in these slums, people know very well that the normatively normal is not really, they, they cannot achieve that. You know, you live on land which is Kabza land. <laughs> right? You, you know, you spend huge amounts of money send, doing tuitions for children. You say, ye, you know, we are teaching him English and once he learns English, he will be able to get a government job or he'll become a big, uh, you know, something will happen that he'll become this. It doesn't happen, 
right? So you then slowly learn to lower your expectations and achieve a kind of normality, which is premised on this notion, which says, yes, our normality is not the normality of the, uh, you know, of the middle classes or of the upper classes, but this is still a normativity, right? Now, to me, this is a very interesting sign of the fact that the norm and its transgression are actually joined together, together. Yeah. which can make it extraordinary and it can make it ordinary, right? So in some ways, one might even say that there is a kind of aspect dawning, that is to say, I now see this as extraordinary and I now see this as ordinary. It's not an architectural division that one can say, oh, this is the ordinary, now I leave the ordinary and now I go to the extraordinary. And is that always the case? Is there nothing extraordinary for you? So the everyday is the place where it seems to me the ordinary and the extraordinary are knitted together. Like, say, in Poe's stories, he'll yeah. say, you know, yeah. I'm going to narrate purely household events. Yeah. And nothing <laughs> extraordinary might happen in those household events. But, but you know, you that itself is a horrifying. sense of dread. Yes. Right? Yes. And the sense of dread is not because something dreadful is happening. Uh, you you are, you slowly get to see that something dreadful is there, though I can't put my finger on it. Right? <laughs> and it's that kind of thing where it can be the opposite also. I might be able to say, um, uh, you know, I might be able to say that something, um, you know, something extraordinary has happened in a moment, mm -hmm. but it will take, it may take a lifetime to decipher what that moment meant. Retrospectively? Well, I don't mean by retrospectively that, you know, some stage, 20 years later, you sit down and say, oh, what did that moment really mean? I mm -hmm. mean, you, it, it creates this sense of friction in you. Mm -hmm. But I don't quite know. So, so in one of the Muslim old women I work with, it's very interesting that she calls her Bangladeshi a vegetable seller, mm -hmm. uh, she'll only buy from him. And she's like, you know, once she told me, it's because I long for him to call me Ammi. But she said she never does it. He always calls me Mataji. So right. I said, why do you have this great desire for to him to call Ammi. you Ammi? And then it turned out that she'd been in love with the Muslim man when she was very young. And right. as happens with a lot of these love affairs, it ended nowhere. They knew it would not end anywhere. But she had this fantasy of a child who would call her Ami. Right. right? Now, right. I can't say that she's retrospectively constantly Certainly thinking not. about it. Mm. But it's a desire mm. that in a certain sense lives along with her desire of having had a husband and children. And not that she was unhappy in that. But there's also something which is like a, like something that, you know, pricks in her because there was a desire and there was a sense in which it had to be relinquished. This is also what I mean by saying that this is also a level of fantasy. She doesn't know what, you know, life might have been if she'd actually married this man. But a, a certain picture of what it could have been tends to uh, animate the most ordinary of lives. That's very interesting. And if for a second we, you know, just, just, just take a totally different paradigm, uh, you know, you're speaking of the urban poor in some settings. Yes. Uh, let's say the life of a celebrity. Um, life of somebody who's jet setting, going to different parts of the world. 
is is that and of course i mean there's only so much that one can think about it in that in in a manner that might be rigorous but is that a world which is very similar in some ways is that oh, a world it could be i'm actually right with repetition right with what's mm-hmm. what's happening there is is that an extraordinary i mean again it's not like i i think the mistake that we often make is that we think concepts have very sharp boundaries yeah right because we are so used to thinking yeah. that if it ha- is a concept that it must have a sharp boundary yeah. my argument has been that concepts do not need to have sharp boundaries for concepts, them to be useful yeah. so so i would argue concepts i mean if you want to think of whether thought is alive mm-hmm. the issue becomes whether the concepts are living concepts or are they frozen concepts so you know true that if i'm doing a mathematical proof i might say let x be such and such sure. in which case the concept has a sharp boundary sure in everyday life if i think can i have a sharp boundary between what is it to love and what is it to hate mm-hmm. i can't have that sharp boundary or if i say what is it to wait it can be in courtsies waiting for the barbarians or now this idea that you must constantly be aware you're in a mode of waiting that the terrorist attack may have here or it may happen there so you are in this you know heightened kind of notion of being suspicious of everything that you see on the other hand if i think of waiting in something like kalidas for example right. i mean that waiting is actually one of the most beautiful ways in yeah. which he's able to think about what is it to love yeah right yeah. so yeah. i don't think that concepts have sharp boundaries i think it's because we are so overawed by the idea that scientific knowledge has greater um, uh, you know in sciences either that for certain purposes you may define a concept to have sharp boundaries but we tolerate a lot of ambiguity in we many of do. the sciences yeah, right yeah, yeah. so so my interest is really to think of thought not as something separated from life but something which is totally imbued in life and therefore my task even in my writing becomes a question of how can i make this alive right mm. Mm-hmm. not something which is like a frozen slide like a lot of the time people say oh we're going to discover what are women's voices but you know the woman may be relating something which has been overwritten a hundred times by her husband mm. so all she can remember is how her husband corrected her mm. rather than you know what she might want to say detecting that kind of power of making your words dead versus thinking when is it that they are alive uh, is something which um, you know which would uh, take that and so of course you can have a celebrity i'm just reading cotsi's um, diary of a bad year mm. and you know as you know the page is divided into two the mm. top is strong opinions which is really opinions about torture the world etc we're very good but bottom page is this man who is in decay who is in dying and who cannot but have erotic fantasies about this woman who he takes in as his secretary and in a certain sense eroticism there is not about saying oh this is going to be domesticated and made in favor sure. you know is something which will be reproduction and domestication it's you know can somebody help me in knowing how i should die Yeah. Right. And the yeah. two are happening simultaneously. Simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way Sudhir in which the uh, ordinary can be designated as art? 
I mean, we're speaking about this difference between frozen and living. Um, are there are there schools within art where you just look at something totally ordinary and turn it into something which which might be designated as art? I have people like Dushaw in mind, for example. Is there a way in which you can turn ordinary into something which is different? I think uh, Dushaw's example refers specifically to uh, a move within uh, within the art world. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in the sense that it acquires meaning only within a certain context that's in the a, art that's world. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, so uh, when you're thinking of, can you think of something ordinary as art? I think one needs to think about. Uh, how aesthetic sensibilities, how one's appreciation of beauty has moves from la- from ordinary life into art. You know, uh, the the boundaries are not always clear. Mm-hmm. There were many times, many periods in history when there were there were overlaps. It's only in recent history that appreciating something as art separated itself outside yeah. uh, religion, magic, etc. Yeah. Only then it, it became an art world within which art was defined in a certain way and Duchamp's move was to within that declassify world. or in that sense, you know, mm. against that. Mm. And there have been, since then, there have been various moves uh, of that nature. Mm. Mm. So... Now, mm. if someone says, you know, this this bottle of water mm. is my artwork, mm. it's still very much within. It has nothing to do with the kind of uh, qualities of that object. Mm. You know, it has only to do with uh, placing it within a certain context, a different context. You know, and calling it so that's the kind of institutional theory of art where anything is designated as art according to uh, the art world. So that becomes a different position. But I don't really think that uh, you know it's 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 always complex. For example, many people uh, when when installation art started to grow. And 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 uh, lots of people used to have problems with it. So it's, what's what's so arty about this? And uh, one argument would be that you know my mother does puja at home, and that puja is as beautiful. It's in fact much more beautiful. So why is that not installation art? Mm-hmm. You know. So looking at something that's beautiful as art. You know. So you continue that tradition where something that's pleasing, nice, beautiful that has inherent qualities of becoming art. But here, it doesn't fit. You know, this argument doesn't fit because installation art is doing something else, you know. So, it's, I don't know. I mean, your your question of whether, a general answer I would say is that no. You can't put, take up an object and say, this is a this is a work of art, basically. You know, so either you place it in a certain, you know, uh, you give it a certain meaning through 
positioning it in a certain way. And when you say you, you mean me. I mean, if you were to do it, or Dushan were to do it, or Picasso would were to do it. Yeah, can, that, that's can you another turn? problem uh, of power within the art world. Mm. Who does it? Mm. You know, if Damien Hirst mm. does it. Yeah. Uh, a whatever he does is, is a work of art. Yeah. Not so uh, aspiring artist who's. Moved from a small town to JJ School of Art. Yeah. <laughs> if he does it, no one's going to notice it. So that's another mm. kind of thing of how the way the way in which power works in this whole context. And you know, if let's go back to the uh, discussion we were having a little while ago, uh, Sudhir, where um, is there a distinction between the indoors and the outdoors for you? Is there a distinction when if we think of this in terms of the ordinary banal mundane and all all of these words are used within quotes um with 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 uh, with a lot of yeah. uh, care is there a way in which the indoors the domestic is is the site of the banal or the mundane a lot more than the world outside i don't think so mm-hmm. i think uh, actually uh, the indoor and outdoor are always in a certain kind of dialectical relationship of course you know you're walking on a street yeah. and then you move into a restaurant yeah you know so from the outdoor you're moving into the indoor yeah but if it's a certain kind of restaurant which allows the outdoor to flow in and out yeah then there's another kind of relationship yeah, there it could be on the threshold so, yeah yes mm-hmm. now a specific way in which indoor separates itself from outdoors is when for example the outdoors becomes threatening in some sense mm-hmm. threatening or alienating mm-hmm. and that's an experience that i have had of the city and i think uh, a generation of us when the city changes in a certain way it's a city that you felt at home in you felt the street as indoor for you in a sense but now the streets have become alien in that sense and then you move indoor so then there is a separation here you 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 create another space here so then the indoor, indoor is a cocoon of sorts it's, it's, yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and then you there is a window and then you allow the outdoor in in uh, or you set up uh, certain kind of relationships with that you know so those are various ways in which the whole indoor and outdoor domestic i think i mean the streets are as everyday as domestic reality you know so they doesn't they don't separate on in terms of uh, but it has a definitely has a different texture you know right. everyday life of domestic life has a different texture from uh, everyday life of the streets you know right uh, there are right. different things right. that come into play right 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 and what's the linkage of uh, some of the discussions we're having we now with language is there a way in which uh, language either hinders or enables experience hinders or enables articulation of what we experience and even this labeling uh, very broadly put of what might be thought of as ordinary and not so it depends a lot on how you think about language mm-hmm. I mean I tend to think about language as not something with which you do something mm-hmm. I think of a life as life in language mm-hmm. so you know so I think of language as bodying forth uh you know it's a uh, that's why I use thing like what is 
you know, what is alive in a word versus when is it that the word is dead. Yeah. Um, or I think of, uh, you know, so when you begin to think of what is it that is life in language, then language also becomes experience. So, you know, you, you would notice that when I was a little girl, I hated, I'm a Punjabi, right? So mm. I hated, uh, I hated it when people referred to me, what is a common word for girl in Punjabi, which is kuri. Correct. Right? I found it harsh. I didn't find it nice. I would want it, I, mean, I was fine with bitu or bitya, but <laughs> not with kuri, right? And I've often thought, why did I find it so offensive to mm -hmm. be called kuri. You know, they would say kuri hai karde. And <laughs> I would like, no, I mean, I don't want to be called kuri, right? Um, and you, then, I, you know, this is sort of things which kind of haunted me very early on from the age of 10 or so to think, why is it that with language we experience something, not just communicate something, yeah. right? And if you think about it, that's why we can laugh on linguistic jokes uh, right, it's language didn't have that kind of capacity. So have you resolved it now? Huh? Sorry? Have, have you resolved this now? Why did you not like being called Kurie? Because I think there's a physiognomy of words. Right. Yeah? So in in a way, the physiognomy of words, which were like, uh, I mean, Kurie had a certain harshness about it mm -hmm. of, you know, being ordered to do something. I think it must have assimilated somehow all these diffused feelings that girls were less valued than boys were. Sure. But Bitya or Bittu uh, overcame that by showing that you are nevertheless my little one, I love you kind right. of, you know, notion. And I think all of that comes into these particular notions of what Wittgenstein calls the physiognomy of words. So mm -hmm. the word begins to have a face and a gesture. The word is a picture almost. Yeah. Uh, with that, it's, which is quite a, you know, which is why I think in... It's, it's beautiful, in, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. very beautiful. And that's why sometimes when words appear in painting, I mean, in Bihar, for example, Mithila painting, you don't mm -hmm. say it's painting, mm -hmm. you say lake. Right, Late. it's writing mm. in some mm. ways, mm. Um, and it seems to me that there is a uh, a much richer theory of language. I mean, I mentioned earlier Abhinav Gupta and Anand Vardhan from the Dhwani school, mm. uh, for whom uh, things like Shabdalankar, um, uh, that is, you know, I can do things like um, um, use metaphors. No, 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 metaphor is different, but the mm quality of the physical, the phonological property of the words, right? Mm -hmm. If I say mm -hmm. Indra Jimmi Jamba Par, Bada Vasuamba Par, Ravana Sadamba Par, Ragukul Raja, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's the words of Jimmi Jamba Par, Bada Vasuamba Par, right? It's the the capacity of the word to rhyme. Right. 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 And right. Anwar then thought that's fine, it's good, but it produces some kind of aesthetic pleasure, but not the aesthetic pleasure which comes when one begins to think how the word, it's not the physical property of the world, but its capacity to produce um, not even necessarily the word, but whole sentences, whole discourses, the capacity to produce. Uh, a certain kind of emotion 
which sometimes is, uh, you know, one of the challenge that Sanskrit poetics has is uh, that because emotions are all mixed, right? There's yeah. the sanchar in that, the, the hate and beloved, hate and love and anger and jealousy are all mixed together. So if you're a really good poet, you should be able to flirt with it. But if you are writing something in Sringar in, as the erotic, then in the end, I should be left with the impression of the erotic. Yeah. So there were really things like if you see the Shantiparv of Mahabharat, uh, you know, there is a very beautiful thing when the women are lamenting. And one, one of the very famous verses is to say, this is the hand that used to... Uh, this is the hand that used to brush my thigh, um, my breast, my, you know, and so on. It goes on like that, which is, you produces this intense eroticism. Mm. And mm. the question was, how can such eroticism be produced in the scene of death? Mm. Right? Mm. These were the kinds of questions that, you know, that, that people debated, which mm. were really about, issues about not just one it could be a particle it could be a whole sentence it could be a whole discourse right where uh, you know where the issue of language was never just a question of uh, you know of what is the what is the word meaning but what other resonances is it actually producing mm. right mm. So I find very strangely great affinities between Wittgenstein and somebody like Anand Vardhan or Avinav Gupt because I think that they were cute to that kind of register of language in which they were not satisfied with, um, you know, with very elaborate kind of uh, rhetoric through which uh, you might deliberately produce, um, uh, you know, produce a certain aesthetic uh, you know, by using those properties of language. Mm, mm, mm. And is 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 this formulaic or what is it like? I mean, oh, it's not formulaic at all because only you know, very bad poet. Um, I'll tell you again a very famous story. The uh, the king was you know one of the person in Raja Bhoj's. Uh, kingdom was very uh, jealous of Kalidas. So mm. he asked the king, why do you like Kalidas so much? Mm. And the king was walking with both of them. So there is a dry piece of wood lying before him and he says, describe it. And uh, the the poet, the minor poet says, uh, um, uh, what was it? Shushkam kashtam tishtati agre which mm -hmm. means this dry wood is before my eyes. Mm. And he asked uh, Kalidas, can you describe it? And Kalidas said, Nirasataruvara um, purutaha bhati. That is, the great tree now devoid of all its sap uh, is, bhati um, is shobhadeta in Hindi, right? Sure. Is resplendent before us. Right. And the king turned to this poet and said, you know now why? <laughs> is Kalidas the better poet, right? And this has, you know, nothing to do with the... Both are absolutely representing what is before their eyes. But one is able to draw from a particular um, music of the, uh, of the language and the thought that this is not just a dry piece of wood. This is the great tree which has now been devoid of its life. 
that what you're seeing is that. Right? Mm. I, I mean, I can give you many examples of that because the Sanskritists were absolutely, you know, or, or you know, in Urdu poetry, like uh, uh, sometimes when Faz is writing about the war, he will use like this famous thing of his Utto Mere Lal. He uses very Hindi words, right? To right. create the sense that he's addressing, uh, you know, what was his land. Right, right, right. Right. That's very interesting. Why don't we spend the last 10 minutes thinking about the future? Uh, is there a way in which the mundane changes? Is there a way in which what might, what was Sudhir Patwardhan of 2500 AD would do would be different from what you do today? Yeah, it's, I think one of the major things uh, that would change is, uh, representation you know as we, we, we are speaking of representation and and to my mind that because of various things technology and various things how we represent the world mm -hmm. uh, that is undergoing I mean with the coming of cinema with the coming of various with the coming of 3D with the coming of whatever one can see this from painting from two dimensional thing you are representing it at one level, you're getting... But we getting... get habituated to most of these things, right? Now, habit used in a certain sense. Yes. We get inured to even new sorts of experiences, new Absolutely. sorts of technologies. But then, yeah, but then the artist is exactly trying to... For example, uh, Godard mm. is supposed to have said mm. that he wants wanted to use mm. 3D technology mm. so that he could make the image absolutely flat. <laughs> huh? So, this is like César, you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You're trying to create volume yeah. without creating volume, yeah. perceptual volume, yeah. you know, in some senses. Then César it's, it's, would it's, be 2D to 3D and Godard would be yeah, 3D to yeah. 2D. Yeah. So, when, when these things change and then, for example, virtual, you know, your, your virtual reality is already with us. Mm. Uh, now, to embody virtual mm -hmm. reality mm -hmm. would be the next kind of you know how the 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 impulse to embody virtual reality would always be there, and for example, I think Solaris Lem and uh, Tarkovsky both bring this Solaris, you yeah, know, of course. yeah, uh, the whole idea Lem. of yeah. of an of a dream. Uh, you imagine something, and that is embodied in front of you. Now this could this could happen. And there's a, I don't know if you know this film, Her. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, Spike two, James, two, two, I think. Ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In which this operating system, this woman's uh, voice becomes embodied yeah. for him. Yeah. So this could very much, we are talking about the future. So this could very much change the way in which representation takes place. And when you, you say know? change, you mean f change in form also? Change in form, of course, mm. but what it does to us mm. is the main question, you know, because as we said, uh, as you said, we, we live through language in a sense, you know, we are living our life through language, we experience through language. Mm. So if our experience incorporates uh, this kind of virtuality, then how would that change our sense of what the world is? or of what we are in the world 
you know, all these things, it's it's speculative in the sense one can't imagine what an artwork, even even 100 years from now, what an artwork would look like. I don't think one wants to imagine that because, sure. but these were the, these would be the kinds of things, areas in which I think one, one of the kinds of things that would come up. What is, what is uh, the long-term arc of the mundane? If, if that's not a nonsensical question, Veena, like 500 years ago um, to today to 500 years later, the same activity, the same effort, similar lives, similar chores, similar rituals. Um, one will have to obviously pick something very carefully to think about something of this nature. Um, and of course, the rest of the world is encapsulated in that. It's reflected in that in a manner that might be deep or frivolous. Um, what What is your take on, on this question? So in my darker moments, I mm. think what's happening is... Uh, that in some ways the boundaries between the civilized and the barbarians are constantly being redrawn, <laughs> uh, right? No, seriously, because, you know, the way that uh, the collapse of the Middle East, for example, uh, you know, is in a certain sense a recreation of the kinds of boundaries to say, uh, you know, these are really the barbarians and we can do whatever with them. So I, I don't know if you've read this book called The Gontanamo Diaries. It's a chilling book by this person who was imprisoned in Gontanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no evidence against him. But mm -hmm. precisely because there was no... But he had traveled to Jordan. He traveled to, you know, these various Middle Eastern countries. The less the evidence was, the more they tortured him because of the assumption that he's so smart. Yeah that he can leave no evidence behind, right? So one thing that really, really, really worries me is the fact that democracies have now created these structures within which they can do so much violence and yet have precisely the same structure. We are doing this violence because they are the barbarians, right? Right. And the other thing that really bothers me is, uh, um, you know, is that being a dedicated to the idea that the mundane has is an achievement for many, uh, that everyday life is an achievement. Um, you know, I work a lot on things like in the slums, how did they get electricity? How did they get water? You know, what? how did they get something like sewage disposal systems? But, but then it must not be the mundane for them, right? Getting electricity. I mean, That's a very good point. That's yeah, a very good point because them. what I've argued is that actually it involves the whole political system for mm. them, mm. right? But the mundane has that quality of yeah. being much more than, uh, you know, than the idea that it's just nothing. It can just be banal. It can just be found wherever. Um, so I, I just feel a lot of danger because also... Precisely because there's also a great digital divide. So on the one side, you have those who have access, you know, and who, who, who have dangers of their own. Like, you know, now governments don't have to spend any money on surveillance, right? Yeah. We are so anxious to reveal everything about ourselves. 
That's right. So yeah. And so every time they find, oh, this person had posted this on Facebook. I mean, the jihadis have. I mean, if somebody wants to locate the three of us at this moment in time, right they, they now, very exactly. well can. We're leaving yes. traces all over, right? Yeah. But what this means is that we have this false sense of thinking that we understand the world because you know Google can always access, um, you know, these yeah. Uh, yeah. millions and millions and millions of data points of everything. But they all of these things which are happening under the, you know, or by the surface on which I think increasingly people know nothing. And so what frightens me is the fact that, um, you know, like, just just think about but the But why do you of, call it a digital divide? Does that change? Like, is, is technology, does, does that enhance the way one experiences life? No, I'm saying, I'm sure that those who are constantly, uh, you know, like I had my students do this thing on um, saying things like they were supposed to observe any relationships that they wanted. And I was quite stunned by the fact that by now, almost all of them say they would never break with the boyfriend face to face, not <laughs> even by, you know, so you will never go and say, look, I'm sorry, this is over. One day you'll open your Facebook account and, and find you've been unfriended, unfriended or whatever it is that you do, right? <laughs> you know, which means that on the one hand, we are so transparent. And on the other hand, um, it, it's a matter of seeing how subjectivities will be produced. But I'm also a great believer of thinking that human subjectivity can never be fully colonized. But I think I'm frightened in some That's ways by mm. these kinds of, as I said, in my darker uh, kinds of moments, because I do think that we have forgotten what it is to care for the dead. We have forgotten care for the dead. what... Yeah, yeah, this was a very important obligation of everyday life to think on how to remember the dead, how to care for the dead. Uh, you know, and I'm stunned See, by the in, fact... in what sense do you mean that? You mean just the place for rituals? By that, I... what I mean is not just in the form of rituals, but there were rituals by which you could bring yourself to address the dead. Mm -hmm. There was this question of how somebody who's dying might be helped to leave things all right for himself or for others or herself or for others. There was a sense in which, um, you know, even with the, um, like in, in Japan, you go there and you find in the temple that there are, there are graves for fetuses, for example. Right. Which is a capacity to... That's very interesting. ...acknowledge that... I may be for abortion, but that doesn't mean I have to block everything about the fact that, you know, a fetus may or may not be a person, but there is a sense of loss. Yeah. Right? We're so politically divided now that if I say this, I'll immediately be put into the category of pro-life. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is what seems to me to be very frightening. So that's at the deeper level that I don't know what will happen to human societies if they do not know what it is to relate to death, dying, um, you know, what is our being towards death, and particularly the fact that our, imagined, our obligations to the living also involve our obligations to the dead. And my, my feeling is, and whether that is the dead, the, the deadening of the earth, whether this is the animals we kill, whether this is, you know, Questions like abortion or euthanasia, 
you know, and all of that. I mean, I do think, I don't think that this is because there's taboo on death. In fact, mm. there's too much talk of death, but there is a certain sense in which the change in sensibilities seems to me to be something um, very important. So, so say in Nepal, it was very common, you know, because death was very, there's a very nice book by Robert Desjardins just coming out, um, you know, where he shows how the idea that life is impermanence, you know, that yes, people will die, we will die, is something which is embedded in everyday life, you know. Your Little granddaughter child. seems to know that. Yeah, you know? So. <laughs> so it's not like something that will only happen at the end of my life. Yeah, It's also yeah. something I live with. So how to take death into life, I think, um, is a very great question to me now. And so these are the things I worry about, but I don't know. Have you painted death, so. Sudhir? Death, dying... Yes, moments of death. dying moments of death. Dying, yes. At a certain period uh, when it came to me from close people. Uh, it's it's very difficult. It's it's very difficult. It's it's as difficult as uh, as as painting, for example. The other thing that's difficult to paint is something like what you feel about rioting, what you feel about killing. Mm. You know? So... I think it takes a long time. One can paint a stage uh, before, you know. One can one can paint hatred. One can paint suspicion uh, in more complex ways than painting the actual act of killing or actual act. Why? Is that, I don't is know. Is that just you? I or I don't know. I mean, there have there are great paintings of corpses, you know. Gericko in France has done some great work. And there have been great painters, but uh, maybe it's, it's, it's uh, something that unless you have, you have wanted to experience closely, you know. So maybe that is it. So the fear yeah. is probably an impediment to your getting too close. Yeah. You know, that may be. So, so what do you think of Bhupen's paintings after his cancer? Yes. I th I think they're, they're wonderful uh, attempts to grapple with it. Uh, but somehow, I'm, I'm not happy with them as, as paintings. I'm not, I don't think they're quite as... Uh, quite as resolved as, uh, for example, an old I, painting that in the family, uh, which is like 78 or something like that, in which he's speaking of death, but he's speaking of death uh, of, or in a community sense, with an angel flying. And, and why are they not like happy today? With these, yeah. these are uh, paintings he did in around 202, 202, one, two, not two, which directly uh, expressed his uh, concern about his illness. And, sure. You know? So, they're violent paintings. Uh, I, I think as paintings, they're not completely resolved, I think, you know? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Sure. Now, what do you think uh. of something like in Sanskrit, we have this rasa called vibhatsa, mm. you know, which is supposed to create horror in you? Yes. 
uh, I thought maybe, you know, something like yes. not a beautiful death, but yes. uh, the actual ability to see death as in its horror. It's a different yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're definitely an attempt in that mm. direction. Mm. I myself did a few, yeah. you know, uh, post Bupin mm -hmm. <laughs> to to yeah. look at it again, but it mm. wouldn't work. Mm. And even that, that supposedly great uh, Buddha figure, mm. uh, which is in uh, complete emancip yeah. mm. emancipation, I think we are drawn to it because it's so different. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but whether it really, uh, I would place it for example again something very different, and which is in Ardhanareshwar. Chola Ardhanareshwars and at uh, Mahabalipuram which actually uh, this is a personal thing but which actually give you the personal experience of sensing uh, a bisexuality within yourself right you know right so that's the kind of thing they can communicate right you know, whether we can really represent death from this side is, <laughs> you know, no, is a, something I don't I think know. that's a great question know. to end this on yeah. and thanks to both of you for making it we look forward to having you soon again thank you really appreciate your coming thanks thank you very much thank, thank you so thanks. much thank you such a pleasure